learn more, change the globe. You must learn. This is Woke Wise College Kids. Hi there. Thanks for tuning in to Woke Wise College Kids. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron. In this episode, we'll have a special guest here to talk about a dirty word in college that is studying. You know you have to do it, but honestly, not too many people truly enjoy it. During my academic coaching years, many college students have openly confessed to me that they are unsure about how to study. You really didn't have to do it in high school, and then all of a sudden it's a requirement in college. If you can admit that your skills are not the best, our guest, Mr. Lenard Geddes, can help you turn your messy study habits into liquid academic gold. He is the founder of the Learn Well Projects and is an expert on a fancy magical word called metacognition. He works with universities, schools, educators, parents, and students to provide practical solutions to academic challenges at all levels. Welcome, Lenard. How are you? I am doing well. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for joining me. Just a little bit of background information. We met about five years ago, five or six years ago. It's been a long time. Yeah, Yeah, so we met during my days at LSU when I was an academic coach working in a learning center. And one of my favorite conferences to go to is the NCLCA, long fancy word for Association of Learning Centers across the country. And not many people enjoy learning about learning. You might think that that's the biggest, nerdiest job you can have, but I think we share in common that we love helping students overcome and really make college possible for everyone. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think you'll, you probably don't know my backstory. So as we get through this interview, you'll probably be surprised to hear how I came into this field considering my background. Yes, that is something we definitely want to talk talk about. A lot of students, I think they don't realize how when you see a professional, you think to like a straight shot from college major, this job, that job to where you are now. But we've all taken different career paths. So anything's possible after you graduate to find your true passion. It's going to take a couple of couple of shots to get there. So I want to start out with a couple of warm-up questions, really fun questions. So all the people out there listening can really understand where you're coming from and really get to know you. So the first question is, what college did you attend? Yeah, so I attended a liberal arts college in North Carolina, Lenore Ryan University. I got my undergraduate and my graduate. Okay, and what made you choose that college and your major? Oh, we're getting (laughs) into my story. So I was a college athlete, and I mean, I was a high school athlete in Florida, from South Florida, and I was a football player, and I was primarily focused on football, and my identity was completely in football. And so what got me into college, I tell you a true story, a friend of mine was, his parents were college-oriented. My parents were not, although they were not opposed to me going to college. My friend, his parents went to college, both of them went to HBCUs, and he was going to go to Florida A&M University. And I had never really thought about colleges. And my whole idea of college was very, very limited looking back on it. And so he invited me to go to a college fair my junior or senior year in high school. And at first, I it was at the mall, the local <laughs> mall. And he invited me and I looked at him like he was crazy. I said, you think, what, why do you, what will make you think I want to go to a college <laughs> fair? And he said, there'll be girls there. And when he said that, I said, okay, 
Yeah, he said there'll be girls there. When he said that, I said, I'm in, let's go. And so we went to the mall and I had received a couple of letters from colleges who were interested in me playing. I wasn't a great college, I wasn't a great high school athlete. I was pretty good. I was captain and had some accolades Mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing in my area. And Florida is so rich in football talent that if you're good, college is going to come find you. And so I was walking around the tables and I happened to see a guy from Lenoron University and they had me fill out a card. And I filled out a card and they started contacting me and inviting me up for a visit. And the rest is history. So if it wasn't for my friend inviting me. To oh, so the moral of that girl, story, no I matter have, who you are mentoring or you think is college material, make sure you always ask and extend the invitation because you never know where that, that will lead. Yeah, you know, we never know what motivates people or what begins to motivate someone and then eventually that person can gain momentum and something else and then their motivation can switch as it happened for me. I came in looking, I went in looking for girls, came out going to college. So (laughs) (laughs) that's why it's so important to just see the potential of everybody. So you talked about you're a high school athlete, but what type of college student were you? You had to put yourself in a category where you're a social butterfly, a cool but calm student, just kind of going to class where you were, where you, did you still do athletics in college? What type of, what category would you put yourself in? Yeah. So when I went to college, I was definitely socially active. In fact, true, another true story. I forget these things, but they're coming back to mind now. During when I went to college, we were all bust out on an orientation event early on in the, uh, before classes even began sort of all the new students got together and they had us go through a series of orientation events. And one of these, we had to get on the bus and go to this particular location. And I was just being myself, you know, a football player. We were there a couple of weeks before the the general uh, new student population. And I was just being myself, cracking jokes with people and laughing and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't realize it, but I guess I was so comfortable around people and probably because I was just a little obnoxious and excited (laughs) about being in college, being, you know, originally growing up in the inner city and then being away at college was exhilarating for me. And so when I went uh, that after the orientation experience was over, a lot of my people, the people who were on the bus with me and participated throughout the event, they came up to me and they said, we didn't know you were a student here. And I said, what do you mean? They said, we thought you were put on the bus to be entertainment, to be a comedian. And I said, no, I was not. I'm actually a student. True story. No lie. So that kind of began my college career. I was kind of happy-go-lucky, just, you know, not growing up with a whole lot and going to college. It was, I was just eager and somewhat nervous, of course, about the experience. But I handled that through just, you know, blocking right in. And I was a student athlete, so I was a football player. I played all four years in college, and that was a pivotal time in my career. Academically, I was always a student mm-hmm. who had potential. You know, when I was in, I remember back when I was in a sophomore in high school, uh, one of my teachers, an English teacher, I wish I knew her name to give her credit, but she saw some potential in me back then. And she asked me to, she actually enrolled me into an honors level English class. And it was me, it was myself and one other black student in the class. And I remember he and I looked at each other when we were in class and we both without even saying words, communicated the message that neither one of us belonged here. Like we just felt out of place. And so I actually got out of the class 
And I, I tell that story because in college, uh-huh. I was just kind of an okay student. I never did bad enough to be like on academic probation, but I never really strove to be a great student. And to be honest, I didn't even know <laughs> that people did strive to be great students. I was, I knew about striving in athletics and in athletics, I mean, I was working my butt off and I was highly competitive, but I didn't know there was a such thing as academic competitiveness. And a quick story I'll give you that, that may kind of tie up this whole thing and, and articulate the type of student that I was. One of my professors, and one of my economics professors, Professor Bill Monty, who has now since passed, he kept mm-hmm. asking me to be a part of this leadership program for the institution. And again, I identified myself as a student athlete. And so I was not interested in doing it. It sounded like more work. He kept saying, oh, why don't you come to this event? You know, you'll like it. You'll get to meet people. You'll get to go on this trip. And to me, all I heard was, why don't you come and do more work? And I was like, no, I'm not going to go do that. And anyways, he eventually just year after year would ask me. And somewhere in my sophomore year, maybe the end of it, and I always had an excuse, I should say, Aaron, because I always had an excuse because we had games on the weekends. And so I would always say, sorry, I can't do it this weekend. We have a game. Can't do it this weekend. We have, we have to travel or that kind of thing. <laughs> and so this one weekend, we happened to have an off week. We had the off week and he caught me and I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have a lot of money in school to go out and do stuff. So I just said, okay, mm-hmm. okay, whatever, I'll go. And it was a life-changing event. And I won't get into all the details to spend all our time here now. Maybe we can do that in a different podcast episode. But as a result, one of the features of that particular experience is this particular group featured all of the smart, what I would call the smart students in school. Mm-hmm. You know, I, again, I identified myself as a jock. I didn't identify myself as being smart. We had to enroll in this course that was called Great Books. And you had to read like some of the great philosophers Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, all these different people. And you would just sit around a big table with a couple of professors and you would talk about what these people mm-hmm. thought about and what the implications of their thinking was. And I had never been in a class like this before. And at first, to be honest, I was, to be honest, I sat in the class <laughs> with a hoodie on. And I know you're probably laughing because you've seen me out professionally now. You probably can't imagine this. When I tell this story to students over the years, they, they often can't imagine it either. But I used to sit in class with a hoodie on and I made it clear to them oh. that I was not going to participate. And there was nothing they were going to do to make me participate. And, and they were nice. And these students were all super smart students who I never interacted with. In fact, uh-huh. I was in my jock circle and they were in their kind of what I would call, be honest, the nerdy circle. <laughs> and never interacted and I didn't even know they were students at the school and when I walked in there I kept thinking who were these students now they knew me because of athletics but I didn't know them and so but over time the professors got me you know I at first I didn't read the material because I felt so out of place and I was Mm -hmm. the only black I should say in this whole in the whole Broad Hill it was called the Broad Hill Leadership Program was the name of the program I was the only black male I was the only black student I think in the entire program And in these classes that we were in, um, Mm -hmm. I really felt out of place. And the professors, they did a, you know, looking back on it, they did all they could to try to draw me out. And they would always ask me questions. What do you think about this topic, Leonard? (laughs) And even if I had an answer, Aaron, I would not give you the answer. I was making it clear that I was not going to participate. Well, I could, the professors would pose these deep questions to the students and the students would leave and they were, I mean, they would answer it. And then I would leave the class and I would read the material and I would see it in an entirely different way. 
and the professors, we go to class and the professors, the students would give an answer and the professors would say, no, nah, that's not what we're looking mm-hmm. for. Just what else do you think? And they were trying to get them. I realize now they were trying to get them to think more deeply, mm-hmm. more conceptually about these types of things. And these students were very smart, but they were giving sort of your textbook answers that you would give. So one day I came into class and I kind of barely raised my hand when they asked the question. And of course, they jumped on the opportunity to get me involved. They were like, oh, so Leonard, what, what do you want to say? And I just shared a little bit about what I thought and what I saw and what stood out to me in the material. <laughs> and they were really feeling it. I mean, the professors were shaking their head and the other, my peers were looking at me and they were like, man, Leonard, that's, that's pretty good. A few more sessions that happened again. And I eventually I became like the centerpiece of the conversation and they were all interested in what I had mm-hmm. to say. And in many ways, the students were deferring to me. Now, think about this. Now, these are the, quote, smart students in the school. And here I am just in here for no reason, I thought. And I am the one that they're deferring to for these answers. So one day, a really cool experience happened to me that made me reflect. And maybe this might kind of finalize my answer on this. One day, we were walking out of class and a couple of these mm. smart students, I would say their names, but I haven't got their permission right now. <laughs> but they said, Lenard, you know what? We never knew you were so smart. And I looked back at them and I said, me neither. <laughs> and I said uh-huh. that reflexively and looking back on it, it wasn't that I thought I was dumb. I just never really thought about academics in that way. I never thought about competing with people academically. I never thought about what it was like to have a great idea. Now, in my social circles, I was the guy who had the good ideas. I was the guy that could think about things and do all that kind of stuff. But in terms of an academic platform, mm-hmm. never occurred to me. In, in athletics, you know, my I wasn't the greatest athlete, but it, what helped me in athletics was my smarts. I kind of could understand the game. I understood what now we call, I was what they now call, had a high football IQ. And so that helped me and allowed me to probably play above my talent level. And, and so anyway, when I left that class, I began to think about that. And from that experience on, my GPA before that was around a 2.8 area. And from that time on, I made the dean's list that next semester, and I made at least the dean's list or higher through that. And then when I went into graduate school, I, I graduated top of, the, I think, top of the class. I think that is a powerful story, and it gives so much perspective on how you became that student from that student to where you are now helping other students reach their academic potential. And I think it gives you a lot of credibility that you didn't start, like you didn't feel like you were naturally smart where I think that's the average, that's the average thought of of the normal college student. They don't think that they could make the A's or they don't, they don't understand what it means to be a what quote unquote smart college student or top college student and still keep their identity and their confidence. So um, that kind of leads us into my next question is how, tell us about your expertise and, and kind of what led you, uh, well, you told us what led you to kind of this place of that epiphany you had about learning and what it means to be a top student. So tell us about your expertise and what you are uh, doing now. Yeah, well, actually, you know, it's funny. It's not a straight line. I know it sounds like a straight line that my experience led me directly into this, but actually it didn't. I didn't, and I still in some ways don't connect my own experience to the work that I do. Now, I do look back on it and I see that if I knew the things mm-hmm. now, that I, if I knew the things then that I know now, I would have been a much, much sharper student 
And that's probably my biggest regret was that I didn't take academics more seriously. In college, you have, you don't realize it as a college student, but once you start working and I'm 42 years old and I have kids and a wife and I have a rich, full life, you don't have the time to just sit around and think as much as you would like to and just to develop your cognitive skills that are going to be used, that you're going to use for the rest of your life. Because thinking and learning is so familiar to us that we kind of have contempt for it. We just, we don't use our skills to their fullest ability. And so my biggest regret, I think, was that I didn't use that time in college and that space in college to fully develop and advance my thinking skills. But with that said, even after all those experiences, I never connected it directly to my work now. The work that I do now was derived from when I initially began as a student, as a director of student success. And when I was the director of student success, this was many years after I graduated college, I was assigned to a group of students who were on academic probation. And many of these students were nursing students, which was a very rigorous program at this institution. The College of Nursing was, you know, very rigorous. And the students and nursing students are generally very committed students because they know what the program entails. My office was in the library and I would observe these students spend significant time studying. I mean, we would have these larger than life-size whiteboards that filled up the entire front of a classroom and they would spend hours and days taking notes during exam times, filling it up with color-coded material and all those kind of things. And you just would assume that students who are that dedicated, who put in that mm -hmm. much time and effort in their work would be strong mm -hmm. students. I mean, heck, way more time than I did, <laughs> to be honest. And so when I realized that these many of these students were on academic probation or didn't make it into the program, I started meeting with them. And I spent years and still do spend years observing those students. I would sit and, and just listen to them study and I was trying to figure out in their minds what constituted studying, what, how they defined learning, and at those points in their minds when they would confirm their knowledge, that sense of I got itness, that light bulb would go off. I was interested in what triggered that. And then once that was triggered, how did they know that the thing that was triggered is mm -hmm. actually matches up with the thing they needed to know for their test or for their tasks? And oftentimes those students would invest all of their time studying only to go to a test and perform significantly below their expectations. And so I would follow up with those students because I was interested in how did they reconcile that experience? How did they put the pieces back together from them being exposed to this information during class, interacting with this information on their own, spending all of this time, energy, and effort developing this sense of confidence to then only go to the test and or, or write the paper or whatever project they're working on and to perform far below their expectations. And I realized that students didn't really have any clear answers to this. And not only they didn't have answers, they never really thought about these things that, that I began to discover. So I began inviting the students in individually. And I realized that in a group of mm -hmm. 10 students, let's say, that were studying together. And again, these students were in cohort programs. So they were in the same classes, had the same book, exposed to the same material, and they studied together. And I couldn't understand why out of 10 students, let's say six or seven of those students would perform below their expectations, some significantly below their expectations. And then you'd have two or three or four students who would actually perform at their expectations or better. So I, I thought if I can get the students who are performing well into my office and I would have them read small, do small tasks, read a passage of text 
take notes. Tell me what you glean from these things. What sticks out to you? And if I could determine what those students were doing appreciably differently from the other students, then I can help the students who were struggling learn those same skills and thus improve their performance. And that's what happened. And so at that time, this was, gosh, several years ago, I developed a Mm -hmm. metacognitive tutoring model. That's what got me into metacognition. Originally, I didn't know the terminology for metacognition. I learned it to help academically articulate what I was seeing. But the real, uh, uh, the core observation of what I saw, Aaron, was I saw students who were, I saw two types of students. And the way that I see it is you had what I call worker students and you had manager students. And the way that I conceptualized this early on was if you think about a factory, and I'm in North Carolina, and in North Carolina, you have a lot of factories. So if you think about a factory, you have, I have friends of mine who are workers in a factory, meaning they have a station, they pull a wedge, they pull a lever, they hammer a particular piece of an object all day long. And that's what they do. And they don't care about what happens before their station, what happens after their station. Their job is to hammer that particular thing or pull that lever. And when their shift is over, they leave. And so you have those kind of people who add value to an, to an organization. But then you also have managers at those places. And the manager sort of supervises or oversees the entire process. And the manager has a very distinct, different set of responsibilities than, mm-hmm. the, uh, than the worker. And what I saw in these students when this was playing out, you had students who were good at working the class station, so to speak, meaning they could go to class and they could do. And if you looked at them the way they went to class and they took notes and all those kind of things, you'd be like, wow, this is this is a model student. And these students would study. They would go back and they would study and they would do and they would go back and they would read. And so I began. So if you break down the academic experience into these academic stations, students were operating in these stations well. But the difference between the stronger students was that they had this other layer of management. And that's where the metacognitive regulation comes in. They were able to manage and oversee how all of these tasks, these stations work together to produce these academic products that they were producing. And so the other students would spend some time, the the worker students would sometimes spend more time on uh, preparation, but because they weren't engaging this metacognitive regulation or managing their learning, then they weren't able to produce the results. And so that was the biggest difference that I saw in the students. And that's what led me down this path. I began helping those students. This, the College of Nursing that I originally worked with, a couple of years later, well, they saw the dramatic turnaround. Literally, students would go mm-hmm. from making 40s and 50s on exams to making high 90s, 100s. These are on rigorous challenging courses that some people will call weed out courses or rigorous courses. And so the the professors contacted me in the learning center and said, Lenard, what are you doing to our students? Like we see these students, they go over there and they're some of the lowest performing students in our program and they come back and they're among the highest. What are you doing? And can you come show us? And so I, so myself and some of the tutors that I had trained went over with them Shared them, shared some of the things with them that we were doing, and helped them implement some of it in the classroom. And a couple of years later, we were the students wow. and myself were invited to an institutional celebration in which the College of Nursing was had received a 100% first time pass rate on the NCLEX, which is the National wow. Nursing Exam. Yeah, it was cool, and they'd never done that before, and they were attributing some of the success to the work we had been doing. And to finish the story from there, we worked with other academic programs, math, 
you know, I, I helped develop a module for a first year experience program that had amazing results. I was able to develop a student athlete study hall program where we translated these metacognitive skills into athletics language, which was pretty cool because I would meet with cheerleaders and I would meet with football players and I'd meet with golfers. I'd meet with tennis players and, and, and soccer players. And I would literally go through some of these tools that you know mm-hmm. that I have on the, through the Learn World Projects, and we would translate these into their respective academic domain. I mean, their, I'm sorry, their respective uh, athletic domain. And, they, and it transformed the athlete, student-athlete experience to where it had the highest, from 2011 to 2016, that institution had the highest student-athlete performance in their 16-member conference and in the institution's history. And, um, and I've been able to take that work on to other schools. So that's where the Learn World Projects comes in to kind of uh, finish out your question. So once I had success at that institution, other institutions began contacting me saying, you know, we've heard about this, we've seen this, or we've heard faculty members or people present on the work that, that you all are doing. Can you come work with us? And I've had an opportunity to work with now dozens and dozens of institutions throughout the United States and Canada to have similar types of experiences. Okay. That's a really powerful example, especially because nursing is a difficult field. And I know how important the NCLEX is to that and how how stressed out, how much material they have. So if you can work with nursing students, any student in any major can have the same success. So if the students who are listening to this podcast were in a mini coaching session with you, what would be the top tips on how they can improve their academic performance through improving their study habits? So this may sound a little self-selling, but it's not. One of the key things that students have to have is what I call, they have to have what I call these preconditions for learning. And and I'll go through these quickly because I I can't go through them in, in detail, but there are before students can be in the proper position to learn, they have to have a couple of things in place. One of those, I'll say, is the what I call a framework for thinking to learn. And this is where the Think Well, Learn Well diagram comes in. When I began working with those nursing students and those students in those other programs, a lot of them were in STEM fields um, and just rigorous courses. I needed to provide a tool for them to do this on their own because ultimately, I wanted them to internalize these processes. So the Think Well, Learn Well diagram is an outflow from those experiences. So they have to be able to think about the act of studying. The act of studying is challenging because if you think about what studying and learning in college entails, is that there's a vast sea of information that students have to navigate. You have, you know, in one course, you have hundreds of topics that you're going to cover You have subtopics based upon that. You have information that the professor is giving you in class or online if you're in an online course. You have information that are given to you via external sources like textbooks and articles and all those kinds of things. And students have to somehow make sense of that. They not only have to figure out what's important, but they have to also be able to figure out what types of thinking skills do I need to enact on this material to produce the types of academic products that are going to be needed. And so they need that framework for thinking in order to do that. No different than if a person was going to be a baker. You need to know a framework for different measurements and different kinds of baking and cooking tools or else you couldn't because because you can't predict what type of tool a job is going to require. 
or as I like to say, it's like monetary values. If you're going to teach someone about money, they have to know all the different values of money because at any given point, any transaction could demand that they have to use a particular uh, monetary value. And so likewise, students have to know how to judiciously apply their thinking skills. So that think well, learn well diagram helps with that. The second thing that I would tell them is they have to learn Mm -hmm. how to glean the learning outcomes from their syllabus. The syllabus is the most underutilized tool that students have available to them. Now, I can say this, that unfortunately, Mm -hmm. many educators don't maximize their syllabus. Mm -hmm. They don't write them in the best way for students because they write them for people up the chain of command as opposed to writing them with students in mind. And so I do a lot of work with faculty and helping them write better syllabi for their students. But students who can look at the syllabus and not just look at the dates of when assignments are due, which is what students mainly pay attention to, not bad information, but they need to be able to look at the learning outcomes and be able to figure out, okay, the the main message they have to take from that is this. Out of all the material that we're going to cover in this course, they all have, in the end, I'm going to be Mm -hmm. graded and judged upon my ability to produce these usually five or six or seven learning outcomes. And they have to use those as anchors to help them determine the way, not only the material, the content they need to master, but they also need to use that to determine the types of thinking that they need to engage in as well. And one more, Aaron, if you don't mind, I'll give one more, which is students have to understand Mm -hmm. the way they've been conditioned to learn in, in high school and how that differs from how they need to learn in college. There's a great book that I wish I could have have written Mm -hmm. a title for, but it's not written for academics. It's written for business, and it's called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And the whole concept behind it is that when you're in business, there are certain skills that get you in the door, but as you move up the ladder and grow, those same skills can now work against you. And likewise, the biggest challenge that I see with students is that they are not productive in how they go about learning. They use skills and experiences that have benefited and worked for them throughout their K through 12 years. And those skills aren't bad. There's nothing wrong with them using those skills in that environment. But when they come to college, there's an entirely different game being played. And students have to be able to transition from the skills that have helped them to the skills that will help them now, because the skills that got them into college won't sustain them throughout college. That's some really great points. So as we wrap up, what's one piece of advice that you would give a college student? It could be related to learning, class, identity, just general success. So what's your one piece that you usually deliver to your students that you work Gosh, with? Gosh, I would say the one piece is, it would be more like an affirmation to students that students have invested more than 20,000 hours in learning, in academic learning, before they ever step foot on a college campus. Think about that. That's if you consider all the time they've been in the K through 12 system and they've invested a significant amount of time, learning is an innate human function. Students know how to learn. The challenge is they have to now decode how they need to learn in college. And they're far more capable than they think they are. And they're not, and even if they're performing poorly, they're not as far off from being high-performing students than they think they are. As I always say, the difference between a B student and an A student is much smaller than the D student thinks. Mm-hmm. That is great advice. 
And so some practical advice for all the students listening, this is great tips to get you started, but your local, your university or college has a learning center. I'm pretty sure there's very, if there's very few uh, colleges out there that actually don't have a learning center, but that's been a staple of student success for years. So if you find your learning center, they have study skills or if they have academic coaches, make sure you get tutoring. Your tutors can help you organize and give you that solid advice. But that's one place where you can get started after you listen to this episode. So thank you so much for joining us in this episode. That uh, As we wrap up, thank everyone for listening. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Be Preppy LLC on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And visit BePreppy.com for more advice and tips on college. And before I leave, I want to leave you with our quote of the day. Those who are successful overcome their fears and take action. Those who view, submit to their fears and live with regrets. That is from Mr. Hove himself, a.k.a. Beyonce's husband, a.k.a. Jay-Z. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care. Thank you. <laughs>